What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hey, Tom Harbin here. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. It's supported by advertising. So after this brief message, we'll get right into it. Deborah's home was stolen. No, I don't mean thieves stole stuff. I mean scammers literally stole her home. The FBI calls title theft one of the fastest-growing white-collar crimes. And this story is why you need home title lock. Deborah says criminals found the title to our home online and filed fraudulent documents claiming they owned our home. Wait, it gets worse. Deborah goes on to say, I was evicted from my own home and 85 grand in equity, gone. Nobody believes you can get your home stolen this easily. This is why you need home title lock, because no insurance or bank protects your home from title theft. First things first, go to HomeTitleLock.com and register your address to see if your home's title has been tampered with. You need to protect the legal title to your home so you don't end up like Deborah. Go to HomeTitleLock.com now for 60 risk-free days of protection. Again, that's HomeTitleLock.com. HomeTitleLock.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings from the city on the base, San Francisco. I'm broadcasting live from AM 910 iHeartRadio here in San Francisco. And uh, it's a beautiful day in San Francisco. And there is so much in the news. And I want to get into the psychology of authoritarianism. And a bullying, frankly. Mike Bloomberg came out with an ad over the weekend portraying Donald Trump as a bully and uh, does a very good job of it. Now there is this debate, as it were, about what is the price of taking on Mike Bloomberg, right? And because of all the uh, people vying for the Democratic nomination, of all the candidates on the Democratic side, the only one who's actually called out Mike Bloomberg specifically by name and, you know, attacked him, I guess would be the phrase, is Bernie Sanders. And so Bloomberg came out with an anti-Bernie Sanders ad today, which actually isn't against Bernie Sanders. It's against the people who follow Bernie Sanders and, you know, attacking them as bullies. I saw the same thing on CNN this morning in my hotel room, you know, with this woman from the Hotel Workers Union. And, and again, she wasn't attacking Bernie. She was attacking Bernie's followers. And I'm like, really? Trump's followers are literally Nazis? They go in the streets with swastikas and tiki torches 
and wave them around and shout, Jews will not replace us, you will not replace us. And by the way, when they're saying Jews will not replace us, they're not talking about Jews taking their place. What they were talking about was George Soros and other Jewish financiers. Now, Mike Bloomberg is probably going to be in that category. If either he or Bernie are president, that would be our first Jewish president. But in any case, what they're saying is that Jews, the international Jewish conspiracy, I mean, this is, this is like the core ancient anti-Semitic trope, right? You know, that, that the Jews control the money and that they're, you know, doing all this. And it's evil, this story. And when they say Jews will not replace us, what they're saying is Jewish people, Jewish philanthropists funding charities that empower Hispanic and African Americans, in other words, plurality, diversity, they're saying that they will not be replaced by African Americans via organizations that are assisted with financial help from George Soros. I mean, all you have to do is read their literature and it's all, it's all over their websites and everything else. So it wasn't that they were saying, you know, some Jew is going to take my job, uh, you know, some Jewish person. No, that's not what they were saying. And these are the followers of Donald Trump. And what's the news today all over the place, wall to wall and all weekend? Bernie's followers are evil. They're bad people. They are tough. They are bullies. They are loud. They are obnoxious. They're in our face. Come on. I mean, give me a break. You've got probably two or three things going on. Number one, certainly, you know, Bernie has more support among younger people than any of the candidates. Let's just acknowledge that. And young people very often are a lot less inhibited than older people. I mean, I certainly was when I was a teenager and in my 20s. And that lack of inhibition leads people to do and say things that might, you know, be offensive to somebody in their 40s, 50s, 60s, whatever. But the straightforward reality is that, well, A, you can't hold a candidate to account for their followers. And frankly, I've never seen the media aggressively try to hold Donald Trump to account for his followers, for the way that they behave. I mean, you know, the people, even at his rallies, people, you know, shouting at the media, giving them the finger, threatening them, pointing their hands at them like in a gun motion, like, I'm going to shoot you. I mean, this is the normal stuff that the press experiences at Trump rallies. And it's not the big story, but Bernie's got some people who say some nasty things. So there's that one thing is the, is the people who are really passionate. And, and, and what Bernie's saying about this, and, and I agree, is that if you want to win a presidential election, you need to have passionate people. That's why Trump is out there doing these rallies, aside from the fact that they feed his ego is you got to crank people up. You got to get your side excited. You got to get them, you know, really going and thinking, yeah, this is my place. This is. And without that, you lose elections. I mean, you know, Mark Pocan pointed out on this show, 200,000 fewer Democrats showed up to vote in Wisconsin in 2016 than had in 2012. Why? They were passionate about Barack Obama not so much about Hillary Clinton. And the exit polls showed that. Now, I would add to that, by the way, that Scott Walker had purged a couple hundred thousand people from the voting rolls in Wisconsin. And, you know, now they've got a voter ID law and all those things are going to suppress the vote, particularly in poor and urban areas uh, where there are more people of color. But 
back to this thing, you know, the question is what is going to be involved in taking on Bloomberg at the next debate? You know, Bloomberg may qualify because the Democratic Party changed the rules so you don't have to have a certain number of donors. You just have to hit a certain point in the polls. And so we'll see. I mean, but Michael Bloomberg bites back. And whether this is going to hurt Bernie or not, I just don't know. It might just energize his followers. And then we have this kind of internecine warfare where Bloomberg supporters and the Bernie supporters are going to war. And that's, you know, not something we need inside the Democratic Party, frankly. So we'll see. A new study, by the way, speaking of Bernie, he just sent out a major press release about this huge study from The Lancet. The Lancet is the British medical journal. It's like the Journal of the American Medical Association, only it's not associated with a a group. But it's the top medical journal in England and arguably one of the top ones in the world. And they did an analysis of Medicare for All in the United States. And this is Bernie's comment about it. He says, this study confirms that Medicare for All will save the American people $450 billion in health care costs and prevent 68,000 unnecessary deaths each and every year. In other words, guaranteeing health care is a human right by creating a Medicare for All system will cost substantially less than our current dysfunctional health care system. It will save working families thousands of dollars every year, and it will prevent tens of thousands of Americans from dying each year. While the CEOs of the pharmaceutical and health industry may not like it, we will end their greed and enact Medicare when I am president. Vic in Stockton, California. Hey, Vic, what's on your mind today? Tom, I have an idea that, you know, if you implement this as a campaign, might just put some sand into the Republican socialist propaganda machine. This is what I'd like your feedback on. I'll take a comments off the air. So this is what I'm thinking. Have as many Republicans, especially in the Senate, give their definition of socialism and put that in the public record. Now, they'll only say that socialism is a path to communism or a centralized means of production. And they will never deviate from that definition because other definitions of socialism have too many positive attributes. Right. So when we get together the progressives, but then we take over and make all Republican definitions public, the end result yeah. is that the Republican Party will lose credibility. The social democracies in Nordic countries have the happiest people in the world, and the UK's NHS is very popular. So whatever Republicans say about socialism, they lose. Thanks, Tom. I think it's comments off the air. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks, Vic. I'm personally of the opinion that even though the Republicans are going to be throwing the word socialism out all the time, the Democrats should just largely ignore it. It's a word that among people over 50 has generally, broadly speaking, a negative connotation with the exception of some of the boomers who were you know, lefties back in the 60s and 70s like myself. <laughs> And it has a very positive connotation with people under 30. You know, in fact, the last study that was done of millennials was that more millennials prefer socialism as not just an economic system, but a governance system than capitalism. Well, capitalism isn't really a governance system. Socialism can either be an economic system or a governance system. So anyhow, Janice in Englewood, Colorado. Hey, Janice, what's on your mind today? Good morning, Tom. I went to the Bernie rally last night in Denver. There were 11,400 people there. Bernie and Joe Salazar were both really good, but Emily Sirota was fabulous. Oh, David's wife? Yes. Wow. Is she, now, she ran for office. Did she win? She's a state state representative. 
That's great. That's great. I remember when that campaign was going on, and David told me about it, and I think we had her on the show. I'm not sure, but you know, I'm, I was supportive of that, and so glad to hear that she made it. And so great. Thank you. She was Thank fabulous last chance. night. I got to tell you, she was just fabulous. Great. Well, you know, onward and upward. Janice, thank you for the call. Ken in Lafayette, Colorado. Hey, Ken, what's on your mind today? Hi. Good morning, Tom. I, too, was at the Bernie rally last night, and good turnout. One thing I wanted to comment on is that the Democrats as a whole need to stop bashing each other and bash Trump for everything that he's done to make sure that that is the reason why we're all out here. We all have differences. Personally, I'm pulling for Andy Klobuchar, but I attended Bernie's rally to support Blue no matter who. Very there important. There you go. And I'm guessing that Bernie important. wasn't bashing any Democrats that he was going after Trump, right? But he did put a jibe into Bloomberg, but generally speaking, ah. he did point out a lot of Trump's fault. But it's important to there vote no matter who. Amen. Thank you, Ken. Our book today is How Bernie Won, Inside the Revolution That's Taking Back Our Country and Where We Go From Here by Jeff Weaver. It's actually, most of the book is kind of Jeff Weaver's autobiography of his relationship with Bernie and the campaign. But this is the last chapter, which I thought was the most interesting part of the book. Talking about Bernie's historic 2016 race and the impact that he and his millions of supporters are having on politics would not be complete without some discussion of the 2020 race. The 2020 race will look very different from those in 2008 and 2016. The most visible difference will be the much larger field of candidates. Many of them will not be well known at the beginning and will have to work to establish themselves as viable choices. That is exactly the position that Bernie found himself in at the beginning of the 2016 campaign. It's critical that if the forces of progress are to win in 2020, each of these candidates must have a fair chance to introduce herself or himself to the Democratic rank and file in a process that is as fair as possible. We cannot lose sight of the fact that the number one job is defeating Donald Trump. On issue after issue, his administration has betrayed the people he asked for support. He promised to drain the swamp, but has filled his cabinet with Wall Street insiders. He promised better health care and then tried to add millions to the roles of the uninsured. He promised to favor the middle class over the elites, but pushed a tax agenda that would benefit the super rich and endanger funding for schools, health care and transportation. As of this writing, he couldn't even keep his promise to release the government's JFK assassination files, a decision derided by the Republican Senate Judiciary Chair and a federal judge. People all across this country rightly wanted change in 2016 and still do. However, this is not the change that working people thought they were getting when Trump sold them a false bill of goods in 2016. In addition, the Trump administration has demonstrated its incompetence at the most basic level of governing. For many of us, this has come as a mixed blessing. The President Trump's lack of competence has meant that agenda items like the repeal of the Affordable Care Act have failed, but no one can argue that it's good for our country to have an administration that at times looks more like the Keystone Cops than the leadership of the free world. There are more auspicious signs that we can, in fact, replace the most divisive pro-corporate elites and anti-working family president in modern American history in 2020. But that is not a given. 
President Trump still enjoys support in the Republican Party as a whole and in many regions of the country. He will have access to mountains of billionaire class dollars, and he will have the very powerful weapon of the bully pulpit of the presidency. There can be little doubt that the media will not have learned anything from 2016 and once again will give him billions of dollars in free airtime, far more than his opponents will get. The business imperative that drove the coverage of the empty podium has not gone away. Despite what the media believes, the moral indignation repeatedly expressed by commentators and TV hosts over Trump's behaviors and untruths does not compensate for the wall-to-wall -wall coverage he gets. Trump knows that better than anyone else and will use it to his advantage. What do we do in this historically important moment? What we cannot do is continue to do what we have been doing. That failed in 2016, and it has failed for nearly a decade now with consistent losses at the local, state, and federal level. Being not Trump is not going to cut it. Now is the time for Democrats to demonstrate what they are for, not just what they are against. That's been difficult for a number of reasons. All the serious contenders for the Democratic nomination in 2020 are rightly focused now on resisting the Trump agenda rather than promoting themselves as the alternative. The American people don't want to live in a world of perpetual political campaigns, though. That said, the run for the 2020 nomination has already begun. Everyone testing the waters will not ultimately be a candidate, but like a chess game, the pieces are moving. And in the early part of the game, the pawns get positioned first. Some are still relitigating the 2016 election. Some are doing so out of bitterness at the outcome, either because they thought they were going to win, they thought the election was stolen from them, or understandably to protect the legacy of Hillary Clinton. Her career in politics is itself historic in many ways, and her accomplishments are many. Her loss to Trump, in their eyes, mars that lifetime of hard-fought achievements. I don't agree, but I do understand it. Campaigns are fought in a historical moment that candidates have no control over. 2016 was a change election, as 2020 will be. Hillary Clinton was not viewed as the candidate who was going to make enough change by working class, people of all races, by young people, and by independent voters, to be elected easily to the presidency in 2016. At another historical moment, that might not have been true. That is not unique to her. In my view, Bill Clinton would not have been able to secure the Democratic nomination today. The grassroots of the Democratic Party has rejected neoliberalism. But except for the Clinton world insiders and some of her most strident supporters, the relitigation of 2016 increasingly has nothing to do with 2016 and everything to do with 2020. There are already highly organized online operations, reminiscent of the Brock trolling program discussed in Chapter 7, whose mission is to attack Bernie and his supporters. In truth, it never really stopped after the primaries. Too many at the top of our own party are scared to death of the regular people in every corner of the country that Bernie Sanders gave voice to in 2016 and continues to give voice to. Consistent polling shows Bernie as the most popular active political figure in America, which has those people in a panic. But what is below those top-line numbers is even more panic-inducing. Bernie Sanders is the most popular with voters of color. That flies in the face of what can only be called a lie of Trumpian proportions. The progressive change only appears to rabid white male hipster Bernie bros. It's not true now and never was. How Bernie Won by Jeff Weaver.
and welcome back. It's such a pleasure to have my old friend and a genuine star, Mimi Kennedy, the actress, activist, actor, activist, writer, board chair, Progressive Democrats of America, star of the hit series Mom on CBS, PDAmerica.org is the website for Progressive Democrats of America, and her Twitter handle is Mimi Kennedy LA. Mimi, welcome back. It's great to be here, Tom. So California is experimenting, maybe that's not the right word, California is using a new system to mark... L.A. County. Oh, it's just L.A. County? L.A. County. Okay, great. Thank you. Yeah, I should just turn this whole thing over to you. (laughs) I was going to say we're 4.5 million voters. You know, compared to Nevada, the whole voting people there are like one and a half million. We got four and a half million voters that are going to be using a brand new system in L.A. County. We're bigger than 39 states in terms of how many voters just one county just la county amazing so what do people need to know if they live in los angeles and they're going to be encountering this new voting system going forward well first of all i want to say it's controversial especially your listeners know it because it uses a lot of technology and i was part of the panel that established the principles for it And I insisted paper ballot, paper ballot at a time when about this was some years ago, people were like, no, we're going to vote on our phones and our iPads. And I went, no, nah, uh uh-uh. So we do have a paper ballot, but it's made by a touch screen. So people think we're voting on touch screens and it's counting internally. It's not. The touch screen helps you make your paper ballot in 13 languages. And you can go to any vote center in the county for 11 days. I mean, you used to have to find one place on one day and get there. And it can take two hours in L.A. traffic to get to, you know, people who had jobs often couldn't vote in person. Now you can for 11 days. That's the good news. That's great. It's cutting down on provisional voting. But there is some sticky news Mm -hmm. that I want to address. Hand-marked paper ballots are available on our system through vote by mail. And if that's what you want to do, you need to call before February 18th midnight. Operators are standing by and you can get a hand markable paper ballot, including that nasty little no party preference. If you don't want to join a political party, but say you want to vote in the Democratic primary, you've gotten a mail ballot that says NPP, no presidential contest in it because you're not in a party. You can forget about that ballot and request another one, Democratic crossover, if you want to vote for instance, for Bernie. So there's that by February 18th. And you look at LAVote.net to find that number. Hand marking a paper ballot at the vote center has to be available in case everything goes south. But here's the bad news about that. You have to make up your own contest as well as know who you want to vote for. And there's 12 judges. There's your congressman. There's your city council person. There's School board, there's all kinds of local contests that need progressives in them. And if you're just going to vote in the presidential primary to hand market, you're going to miss all those progressives locally. So that's a not good thing on local democracy. Your sample ballot, which you can get at the LAVote.net, will tell you all those races and you'll have to write them out by hand. So I don't 
wow. recommend using that right an absentee ballot right. at the polls. I recommend getting your vote by mail ballot if you want to hand mark and you've got until February 18th to do it. But, and if but you're an I, NPP voter, I understand party, that yeah. one of the actually really good things about this system, because basically it's just you're making choices, pushing a button and it prints out a ballot. Now, the ballot does have a QR code on it, which has got some people's suspicious. That's what the That's machine right. actually reads. But on the other hand, yep. these machines are actually owned and run by L.A. County. They're not owned by Diebold right. or ESNS with the Yurosevich brothers who believe that the world is going to end if the Christians <laughs> don't do what they've got to do. I mean, you know, seriously, the, the biggest voting machine company in America was owned by a couple of millennial end time, you know, Christian fundamentalist oh guys. They changed their name to Dominion. And people who know the history of this doomsday scenario religiously know that Dominion was what the political part of this movement wanted. Right, Dominion, right. So L.A. County has said, no, we're not going to play in that sandbox. We're going to have Absolutely. our own machines that we own, that we program, that we can make sure are clean, that politicians from all parties can look at and complete transparency. Do I have that right? And it creates a paper ballot. Right. And that paper ballot is counted on a scanner, the way our paper ballots are now. They're scanned. Those scanners make ballot images. John Brakey's been fighting for that for years. Mm -hmm. And the ballot image file could be made public, and we could presumably count the votes again redundantly as public people. There are many aspects to this technology that need citizen observation and close observation, and it all starts with a sign-in that's on an electronic poll book. So, hello. I am hoping that cybersecurity, and that's Alex Padilla, our Secretary of State, mm-hmm. he better have it locked down real good. But yeah. we do have a paper ballot. And if we hand-counted all those paper ballots, as long as those voters verify them, that's good. And if you want to hand-mark it and have all your selections possible and just fill in an oval, you've got to get your mail right. ballot and do it. But our tally system... So, so Mimi, I wanted to talk about provisional ballots just very briefly. It's kind of a tangent yeah. to all this, but yeah. in my research for this for this new book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting, what I found is that you know the provisional ballots were essentially created in 2002, at least in their current incarnation, as a part of the Help America mm-hmm. Vote Act. And the idea yeah. was, you know, even if you're not on the voting rolls, if you show up and you want to vote, you should be given a ballot. But in red states, the provisional ballots are never even opened, much less counted. I mean, after 2004, John Edwards on this program was ranting about the fact that there were tens of thousands more unopened provisional ballots in Ohio than the margin of victory that George Bush claimed over John Kerry. Um, And in many of those red states, if you are given a provisional ballot, you have a week, you know, various from state to state, two days to five days, whatever it may be, to show up at the Secretary of State's office and prove you are who you are, show them your driver's license and birth certificate and marriage license and everything else. And and people just don't do that. And so their votes literally don't ever get counted. But there are some blue states that use provisional ballots for things where, you know, somebody shows up at the wrong precinct or, you know, but they are a registered voter. They are legitimate. That's true. And so they do get counted. So in California, I understand provisional ballots usually actually do get counted. Is that right? That is right. But there was a big fraud hole in that provisionals were counted last. And if a mail ballot came in in your name, that was counted first. So there was a big mail possibility of fraud by beating these provisional voters to the count. That's gone under L.A.'s new system, and that's the best part about our new system. That is gone. The only provisional ballot will be if somebody found your missing mail ballot, sent it in real early, and you get to a vote center and want to vote, and they go, we already have a mail ballot in your name at the registrar's. It's been processed. It won't be counted until 8 p.m. 
it's illegal to count before 8 p.m. on election night, all post quotes. But you process ballots, you signature match, and they become anonymous. They're getting ready to count. If you have a mail ballot that's been that's been done to, you have to vote provisional now. But that is going to be very rare. And you know the reason they're doing that is because they want to see if there is that kind of fraud going on with mail theft and right. forgery of signatures. They want to find out. Right. Which has happened. I mean, you know, we saw this in one of the Carolinas, yeah. you know, where the guy was going yeah, around and buying ballots from people mm-hmm. for five bucks. And there was a scandal mm-hmm. about that in the U.K. about five years mm-hmm. ago. But it's rare, but it does happen. It's rare. Mimi Kennedy. Mimi, where can people get more information about this if they want to follow up on LAVote.net. And I have an article up at L.A. Progressive, all one word. L.A. Progressive is my article. LAVote.net is the register's website for everything that you need to find. Thank you. It's LAProgressive.com, actually, because I've got the article. Mimi Kennedy. Mimi Kennedy, PDAmerica.org. Thank you, Mimi. Thank you. Great to talk to you, Tom. Thanks. Back at you. TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Mimi Kennedy, her uh, Twitter handle, by the way, Mimi Kennedy L.A. We'll be right back. Picture your face in the mirror. See all those wrinkles around your eyes? How about crow's feet, large under-eye bags? Now, imagine they're gone. And I'm not talking about some risky, expensive surgery, just gone in minutes. It's called Plexiderm, a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags in minutes. It's the edge you've been looking for. Don't believe it? Try it. You won't have to imagine anymore. You, you try this stuff, you'll look just like you, only 10 years younger. Plexiderm can give you the confidence you'll need to be yourself at work or out with friends. And the best part is Plexiderm goes on clear, so nobody will know you're using it. Unless, of course, you tell them. And you may want to brag about it. I don't know. Anyhow, go to tryplexiderm.com and use my code VOICES for 50% off a full-size bottle of Plexiderm plus an, ex- an additional $10 off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra 10 bucks off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code VOICES. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit triplexiderm.com today and use the code VOICES at checkout. That's triplexiderm.com, code VOICES. Morris in Long Beach, California. Hey, Morris, what's on your mind? Mike Bloomberg. He gave a talk where uh, I think it was regarding uh, something in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where he wanted to invest $70 billion into that community because of the experience they went through in the early 1920s being bombed and, you know, denied their prosperity and whatnot. And uh, it all sounds good. But, you know, if he really wanted to be serious about this, Professor, this is what Mike Bloomberg can do. He could take one of them billion dollars that he's got and say, we're going to give free college to all slave descendants and to, uh, to 10 black colleges for the next 10 years. And we're, and we're going to call that reparations. He would pretty much own the African-Americans. And that's real, not just empty rhetoric. Right. And let me leave by saying this. Uh, Bernie Sanders is the front runner, MSNBC, CNN, Fox News. He is the front runner, okay? And there is no second place. He is it. And don't believe nothing else you hear. I'm telling you what's going on. There's a blue wave that's so big, these false narratives, these linguistic facades, these euphemistic phrases that these corporate voices are using. It's not enough. People can see right through it. Thank you, Morris. This is from Morning Consult. They do these uh, polls. This was pre and post New Hampshire, and Bernie went up four points. Joe Biden went down four points. But here's the numbers. Right now, Bernie, this is nationwide, Bernie among Democratic primary voters, people who actually vote. 
Bernie's at 29%, almost a third of the vote. Joe Biden, 19%. Michael Bloomberg, 18%. Uh, Buttigieg, 11 Warren, 10 And Amy Klobuchar, 5%. So that's where we're at. And Morris, well said. Thank you for the call. Calvin, in is it Dighton, Kansas? Dighton, Kansas. Just a little bitty town in the middle of Kansas. Okay. Thanks uh, for calling. You're talking about Medicare. Mm-hmm. You're talking about Medicare for all. You do know we've had a government-paid health system in this country for over 80 years. Yeah, it's the military one. Exactly. And how screwed up is that? Well, it's not very screwed up. The Veterans Administration provides really good service to veterans. When you can get in. I'm a vet. My son is a vet. He served a tour in Afghanistan, a tour in Iraq. He's having a hard time getting medical care. Then I would recommend, I would strongly recommend, Calvin, if you look at the surveys that have been done, and and the serious good science has been done on this, where people are asked, how happy are you with the health coverage that you have? And they ask people who have private health insurance, they ask people who are on Medicare, they ask people who are on Medicaid, they ask people who are on TRICARE or, or getting their service exclusively through the VA. And the VA ranks consistently across the United States as the highest. Now that said, The VA is not Medicare for all. The VA is socialist medicine. It's socialized medicine. It's just like the United Kingdom. That's what you're headed for. No, that's not what we're headed headed for. for With Medicare, no, there is not a single Democrat who is suggesting. Calvin, let me finish my damn sentence. There's not a single Democrat who is suggesting that the federal government should own hospitals and employ doctors. We're not talking about putting private, you know, private industry essentially in terms of your doctor having a practice or your hospital, you know, being local. Owner. We're not talking about any of that. All they're suggesting is that the bankers in the middle, the health insurance companies, who are skimming 20, 25% off the top and putting it in their pockets, that they should be replaced by the Medicare administration system that handles the money, just handles the money at a 3% overhead. And we would have, as a consequence of that, trillions of dollars over a 10-year period, we'd have an, an extra 8 to $10 trillion left over that we could use to provide better services. But nobody is talking, no, literally nobody is talking about turning the healthcare system of the United States into the VA. That said, though, you know, I want to reiterate one more time, the VA has the highest rankings in the country, which is either a really good comment about the VA, or if everything you say is true, a really bad comment about everything else. So anyhow, we'll see. Charlie in Silver Spring, Maryland. Hey, Charlie, what's up? Hi, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. I wanted to call about action that people can take any day from now and every day until the elections in November that can help build the blue wave. One election at a time and vote by mail uh, campaign at a time. It's called postcardstovoters.org. You've probably heard about it. I want to make sure your listeners know about it, too. I'm actually sitting here writing postcards while waiting for you to take my call. Mm-hmm. And my wife and I were at a postcard writing party last night with local activists, and we wrote to a campaign in Pennsylvania, a state house race, and encouraging people to exercise that voting muscle. And another area that we're encouraging voting is Florida, vote by mail, because that increases the participation Mm-hmm. I'm looking at their website right now. I just typed it in. You always wonder, you know, okay, who pays for this? Who funds this? Is it that you get ads or is it being funded by a foundation or what? And I'm looking on their about page and it doesn't say. And that's why. Well, here's, the, here's the history I that I wearing. know. There's okay. about 70,000 volunteers right now. It's really almost entirely volunteer. I don't know if there's any outside funding for it. Do you know if they're um, selling your personal information? 
And I'm sure they're not. I'm sure it's, it's, very, it's, it's very tied into local activists. It started off with a small group of volunteers from Facebook for the John Ossoff campaign. Oh, interesting. And now it's 70,000-plus volunteers. It grew from just about 60,000 just a couple months ago when my wife and I first started doing this. So it's really catching on, and I encourage people to check it out. Okay. And, uh, All right. Got it. Charlie, thanks a lot. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. There's a Robert Reich wrote a fascinating piece. I'm reading it over on Alternate, but I, I'm guessing most people are seeing it on Robert Reich, his blog, his website. And he's talking about oligarchy and tyranny. And there are distinctions we need to make here. You know, there's that book uh, on tyranny by Timothy, whatever his last name is, that uh, Rachel quotes. And I've read, I read parts of it on the air a year and a half, two years ago when it came. In fact, he was on our show. And tyranny is basically, you know, when you lose all your freedoms. Oligarchy is when your government and, by extension, your economy are run of, by, and for rich people. Now, I would argue that we have been in an, area, in an era of oligarchy ever since the Reagan administration, that oligarchy was what the Reagan administration was trying to turn us into, and that we have, with every successive presidency, Democratic or Republican, ever since Reagan completely changed the economic and political system of America, left behind Keynesian economics and readopted Warren Harding's horse and sparrow economics, uh, renaming it trickle-down economics, that basically, you know, we've become an oligarchy. We know from the study that Gillens and Page did at Princeton and Northwestern universities that the political desires of the bottom 90% are as likely to turn into legislation as random noise and in many cases less likely than random noise, whereas the desires of the top 1% are very likely to be made into legislation, and the desires of the top 10% are somewhat likely. So, you know, far more than 50%. So I think by most definitions, that's considered oligarchy. And yet Americans so far have been kind of, well, I guess this is okay. Although I think, frankly, I think that a lot of the blowback and backlash and whatnot, whatever you want to call it, that has led to Donald Trump being in the White House right now really came out of this sense that people have that the government is not responding to what they want. The government is ignoring their needs and desires. You know, when George W. Bush basically cut long-term unemployment down to just one year, and then Donald Trump cut it even shorter than that. When Bill Clinton block granted half a dozen different welfare programs so that the states could cut them and cut them and cut them and put all, the, all kinds of you know, work requirements and other things like this onto them. And then Bush tightened the screws even further on that so that when the Great Recession happened, those programs, that social safety net that Lyndon Johnson, the great Democratic president, had you know, with a great society had built, that those programs were literally no longer there or they were time limited, or they were radically cut back in terms of you know, how generous the benefits were. So people were just you know, living on the edge. And now we've got this massive homelessness problem all across the United States. I attribute a lot of it to you know, the end of welfare as we know it. 
which wasn't, you know, some like evil plot by Bill Clinton. This was Newt Gingrich's thing. It came out of the Reagan revolution. Clinton just went along with it and decided, you know, hey, it's kind of popular. I'll take credit for it. But, you know, this is oligarchy. But the shift that has happened, and I think this is really consequential. This is the danger of oligarchy. With oligarchy, power concentrates along with wealth. Political power and wealth become essentially synonymous. And this was not the case during the era from the 1930s to the 1980s. During that period of time, rich people were actually getting richer slow, more slowly than working class people. Working class people were building wealth more rapidly than the top 1% or 5% or 10% during that period from, from 1930 to 1980. And the outcome of that was we built the modern middle class. Over 60% of Americans became middle class, which meant you know, one person working could put a, you know, raise a family, put your kids through college, buy a new car every couple of years, take a vacation every year. You know, the life that my dad had working at a tool and die shop, at a union tool and die shop. Well, you know, Reagan blew all that up. And last year we slipped the American middle class, we slipped below 50%. Fewer than half of us are in the middle class now, you know, which is just a, a, an obscene tragedy. But anyhow, so that's how oligarchy works. But here's what's happened in the last three years. We have this oligarch, Donald Trump, this billionaire, who was put into power with the help largely of a couple of other oligarchs, Shelley Adelson, whose only agenda has to do with Israel and, and all that stuff, and, and he funded Trump big time, you know, the Las Vegas casino guy, and uh, Robert Mercer and his daughter Rebecca, billionaires, Wall Street billionaires. And they put all this money behind Trump, and of course Trump loaned his own campaign a couple, you know, millions and millions of dollars. I don't remember if it was hundreds or just tens, but... So we ended up, again, with an oligarch, right? And rather than just representatives of oligarchy, rather than just politicians who are willing to suck up to oligarchs. You know, we've had two oligarchic presidents since 2000. George W. Bush was an oligarch. His family is worth hundreds of millions of dollars, compounds all over the country, investments all around the world. And now we've got Donald Trump, who asserts that he's a billionaire. But Trump wasn't just an oligarch, or isn't just an oligarch. He's also a tyrant. And he is shifting our government out of oligarchy. I mean, again, we left democracy behind in 1981. Out of oligarchy and into tyranny. And this is the, this is the argument that Robert Reich is making. And he's putting it in the context of Michael Bloomberg being an oligarch. I, you know, I remember when Ralph Nader wrote his book, Only the Super Rich Can Save Us Now. And what he was saying, basically, was, you know, the, the Supreme Court in 1976 with the Buckley case and then 2010 with Citizens United basically said billionaires can buy the political system. And now they are. Hey, friends, wanted to give you the latest news about my good friend Bill Press. Bill no longer does his progressive morning show, but that doesn't mean he's gone away. No way. He's now out with a great new podcast, the Bill Press Pod, dropped twice a week. Check out the Bill Press Pod for Bill's interviews with some of the country's leading progressives like Maxine Waters, Mark Bocan, Jamie Raskin, 
all roasting Donald Trump. Plus, his lively end-of-the-week roundtable with three of Washington's top political reporters commenting on the latest craziness from the White House, Congress, and the 2020 Democratic primary. For years, Bill Press has been one of the leading progressive voices in our country, so I'm so glad he's still out there on the left and stronger than ever. I encourage you to join me by subscribing to Bill's new podcast. Just go to wherever you get your podcast, search for the Bill Press Pod, click on subscribe, and you're in for a true progressive experience on the Bill Press Pod. Check out Bill's new podcast, The Bill Press Pod, dropped twice a week. Hey, did you know that Hillary Clinton actually won Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina, and Florida in the 2016 election? It's on page 92 of my new book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting. We're doing a book tour. On Wednesday, February 19th, I'll be in Seattle at Town Hall, 7.30 p.m. Sunday, February 23rd in Minneapolis, the Blue State Ball at 1 p.m. Friday, the 28th of February in Portland at Powell's on Burnside. And Sunday in Chicago on March 1st. You can check it all out at TomHartman.com. All the information is there. And welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you and uh, Tyrone in Harlem, New York. I, you're going to talk about the third aspect, and I, I never got to that. I had it in my mind, but in my rant, I never got to that. The third aspect of why it may appear that some Bernie supporters are kind of out on the edge there in ways that Michael Bloomberg can attack. Go for it, Tyrone. Absolutely, because um, Trump supporters... And the Republican Party, we have to understand that they will cheat to win. And they will say they're Bernie supporters, knowing that they are Trump supporters. And Trump even said to them, go into South Carolina and vote for the candidate that you think may may lose or win and just mess up the whole system. They did that in Iowa. We're calling the, the sites and jamming up the phones. These people are doing whatever they can to mess up the democratic process. And we, yeah, we need I have, to put on, on the capsule. Yeah, I absolutely agree, Tyrone. And on my own Twitter feed, over the last couple of weeks in particular, it's gotten really intense in the last two weeks, I've had probably several dozen people come in and behave like they're Bernie supporters, but just viciously trash other candidates. And so I click on it and I look at their profile and they've been members for like two months and they've got 35 followers and, uh, you know, they've made 200 tweets or something like that. And I'm like, these are bots, you know, or these are or these are, you know, intentional trolls, phony troll accounts. And I block them or mute them. Yeah. And so, A, you've got passionate supporters, but B, you've got bots and trolls out there. And, you know, Michael Bloomberg needs to acknowledge that as well. Thanks a lot for the call. Great to hear from you, Tyrone. Valerie in Dallas, Texas. Hey, Valerie, what's on your mind? Hi. I just want to say that, I mean, we've been dealing with oligarchical influence from the beginning. I mean, it really was a very short period of time, from FDR to Reagan, where there was any kind of improvement in this. This was because of the terrible, terrible Gilded Age, how horrible that really was for this world, and especially for the United States. But I'm just, I'm not so negative, you know. I believe that we can vote ourselves out of this. And I think we just, I really deplore the negativity that is surrounding this. Oh, it's the end of the world, blah, blah, blah. Well, I'm worried about the end of the world because of climate change. But 
I really do believe that if we concentrate on getting people to be able to vote, to get rid of voter suppression, to renew the Voting Rights Act, I think it's going to, I think there's really, there's truly, truly more of us than them. And yes. I think that well, that's why they're having to suppress the vote in order to win elections. Right. And I'll, I'll tell you, I'm a proponent of Rachel Beitkofer's ideas, which is that there is no such thing as a swing voter. That, in fact, the electorate changes in each voting cycle. It's just people who voted before don't vote this time. And that's why they turn around. 2010, you know, the Tea Party rose to power because people didn't, people who had voted for Obama didn't vote in the midterm. We have this cycle. But I really, really honestly believe there's more of us than them, and there will always be more of us than them. And yes. Although I, that was true in the 1930s in Germany, Valerie, there were more good well, people in Germany I, than there were Nazis. I know. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying we should ignore this, this, but also this person that's squatting in the White House is a very bad tyrant. And, I mean, not bad, but, I mean, just like, he's not even clever. At least, you know, Putin is clever. A lot of these people were actually clever. They weren't just evil. Yeah, they were actually yeah. evilly clever as well. And this man is not. He is a failure on every But level. he's got clever and, people and, around him. Well, he has, he has, Bill Barr, he has for people example. who are in... Well, yeah, but Barr... I really believe that an evil exposed is an evil that can be dealt with. I really do believe that. I really wish that people wouldn't be so, oh, it's the end of the earth. You know, no, it's not. Yeah. And, and as far as the oligarchs, the super rich of this world, their idea of their survival is to, you know, become, you know, West world. They want to drift into a computer and just continue their existence. If you've ever I read Survival seen that Riches. movie or book or whatever it is. I don't oh, understand what you well, mean. Well, it's actually an interesting, but if you read, there's a book, there's a, I can't remember the guy's name, but it's called Survival of the Richest. And it's an article he wrote because he was invited to give a lecture on technology to these super rich people. And there was literally only five people in the room. And their idea is when the event happens, when, you know, we rebel against the, what, the tyranny, they want to be able to fly to New Zealand and go to their compound and wait out the event. And they have no, they don't even consider themselves part of the human race anymore. That's how far away all of these incredibly rich people are. They don't even consider themselves, they think the human race is done and they don't want to be part of it anymore. So, Amazing. I mean, you can, you yeah, can be Valerie, really negative I, I, and think. Yeah. And thank you for, you know, injecting a note of optimism. So every now and then I, I wander a little too far, you know, down that dark road because I personally. And, and, go ahead. Yeah. Last and word. I want to say Robert Reich is the one who actually did a whole list of stuff saying, stop being so negative. Don't mention that jerk's name that's in the White House. Don't even mention his name. Just yeah. use a euphemism. And on yeah. and on, but this negativity is not going to help people get out to vote. Yeah, I'm in. You know? I'm in. Valerie, thank you for the call. It's great. It's great to hear from you. I really appreciate it. And Valerie's point is so well made. This country has survived a civil war, literally a civil war. Most countries don't survive civil wars, or at least their form of government doesn't survive the civil war. And yes, there was a, actually a change in our form of government for the better, which is extremely unusual after civil wars. Look at what happened after civil wars in Sudan, in South Sudan, or in Egypt, or go back and look at history. 
It's fascinating. The next book in this Hidden History series that I'm writing, I'm on the road right now for the Hidden History of the War on Voting, but every six months we're going to be releasing a new book, which keeps me writing all afternoon, every day, and all weekends. And the next one's on, not the next one coming out, the next one coming out is on monopolies, which is business oligarchy. But after that, it's going to be political oligarchy and tyranny. And that's the book that will be coming out, I guess, spring of 2021. But in any case, we have been through so many things here in the United States. And if you, you look back at the Civil War, what happened was that because of the invent, invention of the cotton gin, in, in 1797, by 1815 or thereabouts, because a cotton gin could clean cotton, in one hour it could clean as much cotton as 50 enslaved people. And so what this did was it allowed the, the big plantations to far more efficiently produce cotton and make a pile more money. And they started buying up all the smaller plantations. And, you know, just like, this is just like the agricultural systems in the United States where ConAgra and all these big ag companies are buying up family farms and then having the family farmers be basically tenant farmers, you know, kind of sharecroppers. And that's what happened in the South from 1815 until the 1860s. And what rose in the South was an oligarchy. It was a firmly established oligarchy. And for black people and poor people, it was also a tyranny. And the Civil War was not a war between the North and the South. It was a war between the North that was still holding to values that we would call a, uh, the values of a democratic republic, and the South that had become a full-blown oligarchy, a completely different system of government. And each one of the southern states, these plantations had gotten huge. They had turned into, into industries. Their oligarchs, their owners were the way, you know, all of the state senators and the elected representatives and, and the U.S. senators from those states. They were, they were very, very, very mind-bogglingly wealthy people. And so what we saw with the Civil War, and it's an amazing story, actually. There's a book about this called From Oligarchy to Republicanism by a fellow whose last name is Neighbors. Uh, N-A-B-O-R-S. And it is a shocking revelation that part of America actually slid into oligarchy. We fought a civil war over it. We came back from that. We tried to push back against emerging oligarchy again in the late 19th, late 19th century, early 20th century. Teddy Roosevelt stood up against it. Franklin Roosevelt stood up against it. We have been to hell and back as a country, and we keep bouncing back. Because we have this idea that came out of the Enlightenment, out of the 1600s and the 1700s, that people can actually govern themselves. And as long as we hold that... You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. We'll be back with more of your calls. Uh, stick around. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today is Mortal Republic, How Rome Fell into Tyranny by Edward J. Watts. 
This is from the first chapter, which I think is really more like an introduction. This book explains why Rome, still one of the longest lived republics in world history, traded the liberty of political autonomy for the security of autocracy. It's written at a moment when modern readers need to be particularly aware of both the nature of the republics and the consequences of their failure. We live in a time of political crisis when the structures of republics as diverse as the United States, Venezuela, France, and Turkey are threatened. Many of these republics are the constitutional descendants of Rome, and as such, they have inherited both the tremendous structural strengths that allowed the Roman Republic to thrive for so long, and some of the same structural weaknesses that led eventually to its demise. This is particularly true of the United States, a nation whose basic constitutional structure was deliberately patterned on the idealized view of the Roman Republic presented by the 2nd century BC author Polybius. This conscious borrowing from Rome's model makes it vital for all of us to understand how Rome's Republic worked, what it achieved, and why, after nearly five centuries, its citizens ultimately turned away from it and toward the autocracy of Augustus. No Republic is eternal. It lives only as long as its citizens want it. And in both the 21st century AD and the 1st century BC, when a Republic fails to work as intended, its citizens are capable of choosing the stability of autocratic rule over the chaos of a broken republic. When freedom leads to disorder and autocracy promises a functional and responsive government, even citizens of an established republic can become willing to set aside long-standing principled objections to the rule of one man and embrace its practical benefits. Rome offers a lesson about how citizens and leaders of a republic might avoid forcing their fellow citizens to make such a tortured choice. Rome shows that the basic, most important function of a republic is to create a political space that is governed by laws, fosters compromise, shares government responsibility among a group of representatives, and rewards good stewardship. Politics in such a republic should not be a zero-sum game. The politician who wins a political struggle may be honored, but one who loses should not be punished. The Roman Republic did not encourage its leaders to seek complete and total political victory. It was not designed to force one side to accept everything the other wanted. Instead, it offered tools that, like the American filibuster, served to keep the process of political negotiation going until a mutually agreeable compromise was found. This process worked very well in Rome for centuries, but it worked only because most Roman politicians accepted the laws and norms of the Roman Republic. They committed to working out their disputes in the political arena that the Republic established rather than through violence in the streets. Republican Rome succeeded in this more than perhaps any other state before or since. If the early and middle centuries of Rome's Republic show how effective this system can be, the last century of the Roman Republic reveals the tremendous dangers that result when political leaders cynically misuse their consensus, these consensus-building mechanisms to obstruct a Republic's functions. Like politicians in modern republics, Romans could use vetoes to block votes on laws. They could claim the presence of unfavorable religious conditions to annul votes they disliked. And they could deploy other parliamentary tools to slow down or shut down the political process if it seemed to be moving too quickly toward an outcome that they disliked. When used as intended, these tools help promote negotiations and political compromises by preventing majorities from imposing solutions on minorities. But in Rome, as in our world, politicians could also employ such devices to prevent the Republic from doing what its citizens needed. The widespread misuse of these tools offered the first signs of sickness in Rome's Republic. 
Much more serious threats to republics appear when arguments between politicians spill out from the controlled environments of representative assemblies and degenerate into violent con confrontations between ordinary people in the streets. Romans had avoided political violence for three centuries before a series of political murders rocked the Republic in the 130s and 120s BC. Once mob violence infected Roman politics, however, the institutions of the Republic quickly lost their ability to control the contexts and content of political disputes. Within a generation of the first political assassination in Rome, politicians had begun to arm their supporters and use the threat of violence to influence the votes of assemblies and the elections of magistrates. Within two generations, Rome fell into civil war, and two generations later, Augustus ruled as Roman emperor. When the Republic lost the ability to regulate the rewards given to political victors and the punishments inflicted on the losers of political conflicts, Roman politics became a zero-sum game in which the winner reaped massive rewards and the losers often paid with their lives. Above all else, the Roman Republic teaches the citizens of its modern descendants the incredible dangers that come along with condoning political obstruction and courting political violence. Roman history could not more clearly show that when citizens look away as their leaders engage in these corrosive behaviors, the Republic is in mortal danger. Unpunished political dysfunction prevents consensus and encourages violence. In Rome, it eventually led Romans to trade the Republic for the security of an autocracy. This is how a Republic dies, mortal Republic. Karen in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Karen, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. How are you? I am well. What's up? I just wanted to talk about, you know, everybody says, I watch free speech a lot. Check your voter registration. Check your voter registration. Yeah, if you live in a red and, state. And Pennsylvania, they've been messing with voter registrations. I mean, Pennsylvania is one of the states where Hillary Clinton won the state by several points in the exit polls, but the official results showed that she lost. Right. I talked to you about this one time before about a website called vote.org mm -hmm. where you can check your registration, you can register to vote. But I don't think I, I know there are people out there who don't know exactly how to go about checking their voter registration. Mm -hmm. And I just wondered if you would talk about that a little bit. Sure. As I recall, I checked that website out after you told me about it a few months ago. And my recollection is that it just bounces you. You know, you pick your state and it just bounces you to the secretary of state's office for your state. Am I remembering right? When I check my voter registration, all I have to do is type in my name and address, and it comes up with that my voter registration is good. Right. I would always, you know, I don't know enough about vote.org. I'm always reluctant to put my personal information into any website that I don't absolutely know. But every state, I believe every state's secretary of state office, there may be some red states that don't, but generally speaking, every state's secretary of state office will have a page somewhere where you can check your voter registration. And you can probably find it fairly easily with a search engine like DuckDuckGo or Google. But yes, check your voter registration. It is an important thing. Thank you so much for the call, Karen. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.
Picture your face in the mirror. See all those wrinkles around your eyes? How about crow's feet, large under eye bags? Now imagine they're gone. And I'm not talking about some risky, expensive surgery, just gone in minutes. It's called Plexiderm, a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under eye bags in minutes. It's the edge you've been looking for. Don't believe it? Try it. You won't have to imagine anymore. You, you try this stuff, you'll look just like you, only 10 years younger. Plexiderm can give you the confidence you'll need to be yourself at work or out with friends. And the best part is Plexiderm goes on clear, so nobody will know you're using it. Unless, of course, you tell them. And you may want to brag about it. I don't know. Anyhow, go to TryPlexiderm.com and use my code VOICES for 50% off a full-size bottle of Plexiderm plus an, ex an additional $10 off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code VOICES. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit TryPlexiderm.com today and use the code VOICES at checkout. That's TryPlexiderm.com. Code Voices.